If you have a Bible with you, open it to the book of John, chapter 3, and we'll be beginning in that chapter and reading the first 15 verses of that book. Now, I am not the handiest of men, uh, which, generally speaking, isn't a huge issue, except for the fact that we own an old house, which means that I am required to fix many, many things around the house. And there are basically a range of things that I can handle. I can handle very small and simple things. For instance, this spring our dryer died and it needed a new fuse. I can do that. So I fixed that fuse and it was awesome because I was a hero. There are other problems like our electrical went out in, in several rooms in our house and we had this weird thing going on. A light switch went out. So simply replacing the light switch, I had to call an electrician for. Now it turns out that there was something weird about that light switch. So I'm not that incompetent, but nevertheless, you sometimes need to call for experts to help you out when things go wrong. So some of these things we can handle, some of the things we can't. And then there are further things that when they go wrong, we know that there is no hope for this. It is now time to replace it. I had, uh, I remember when I took my first internship, my, my father bought me a car because I was working out in the thumb and so I was driving there and back to Midland and, and so he, he kindly bought me a car and this was a, a helpful car to me for a very, very long time. But toward the end of that car's life, it, it was really suffering from epilepsy and the shakes and uh, it really was not going to do well and I remember going to Wednesday night church down in Louisville thinking, I was on the highway, I was on 265 and I was thinking, Lord, I really hope that this car doesn't just blow up on me right now. It was shaking really bad. And, and I got to, got to church and I looked at Brie and I said, Brie, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to drive this car home. And uh, fortunately for me, um, whether it was God mercifully killing it or whether it was itself committing suicide, I came out and there were two flat tires on the car and I said, that's it. Uh, so we're done with that. And so that car needed to just be replaced, okay? So there are things that we can fix. There are things that we need experts to help us fix. And there are things that are not fixable that just need to be replaced. It's often said that a worldview basically answers four questions. Where do we come from? What has gone wrong? How do we fix it? And what are we going toward? What, are, what is our end game in all of this? So let us think this morning, not just about what has gone wrong, but how it has gone wrong. What stage of fixing is humanity at? So it doesn't matter who you ask, there are things that are wrong. It doesn't take much to look around and to tell that things are not as they ought to be in this world. So how do we fix those things? Exactly how wrong are we? Are we in the small fixes that we can handle type phase? Do we just need a, a fuse here or there? Is it just knowledge that we need? Somebody to instruct us on how to live. We can go and we can YouTube it. We can watch a couple of videos and know how to fix our problem. Are we more problematic than that? Do we need experts to tell us? Do we need educated people to instruct us on how to live? Are we so blind and so dumb that we actually have to have priests come down to help us to fix humanity, to show us the way forward? Or are we in even more dire straits than that? Do we need something that is just brand and fully new? Are we so broken as to need a total new replacement? The answer to this question, above everything else we might talk about, is what Christianity is set off as different from every other religion. How we answer this question, especially given what we're going to read today, makes Christianity different than every other religion. And it is important. It is important to know where we've gone wrong and how badly we have gone wrong because if we're just a little bit off, we can be corrected. If, if, we are, if we are just in need of a couple of fixes or we're in need of somebody to simply tell us what we need to do, then we don't need Christ. 
But as it is, we do need him. It's important to note that Genesis doesn't really answer these questions for us. Genesis tells us that something has happened, but it doesn't tell us how devastating that something was. John, through the words of Jesus, will hear tell us precisely how damaging that was. So if you will, read with me John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of our God. First thing I would like to imply or to impress upon you this morning is your sin makes you broken. You are not in need of a small fix and you are not in need of professionals, if you would call me that, like myself, to tell you what you need to know in order to come to know God. But you are truly and thoroughly broken. Now Nicodemus is laid out here as a really excellent man. We need to understand that before we understand much of what Jesus has to say here. And we can read almost immediately that he was a Pharisee, and for many of us, that implies that he is a wicked and worthless man. Probably did a little bit for John's readers as well. But nevertheless, it also implied that he had knowledge of the law, that he was an upright man, that he was a very moral man as the law was concerned. It would have marked him out as somebody of grave importance. He was also a ruler of the Jews. Again, his importance is highlighted here. And he has authority over people. He has influence over people. He is a good person, in other words, for Jesus to put in his corner. Later on, we read that he is a teacher, meaning that he is knowledgeable in the Old Testament. He understands what God wants and why he wants it that way. And he can communicate it to people. He is likely well-respected in every area of his life. When Nicodemus shows up and he talks, people listen. In other words, he has everything that we should expect in someone who is close to the kingdom of God. So if you were to go out and you were to find somebody and you were going to say, who is close to the kingdom of God? Surely in the first century, if there is somebody who is going to be saved, who is going to be saved? And one of the first people that you would point to would be Nicodemus. Nicodemus has to be one who is close to the kingdom of God. After all, was a Jew who understood and knew the law. He was, according to the law, very morally upright. He is honest. And what's more, especially if you are a Christian, is he gives a good 
confession. Listen to this confession. First, he recognizes Jesus as a rabbi. Now, he is a teacher in the law. Jesus himself is not an officially recognized teacher, but Nicodemus is. For Nicodemus to call him rabbi, which simply means teacher, is to give him a great honor. A great honor. And more than that, Nicodemus does exactly what we would expect somebody in his shoes to do. He has seen the signs that Jesus has done. He's watched the miracles, and he's come to the right conclusions. We know that no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. This is literally the confession that we are expecting from somebody of this day. Nicodemus here is going to have things said to him that are very difficult, but realize the difficult things that Jesus is going to say to him is not because his confession is wrong or, or abhorrent. As a matter of fact, it lines up very, very well with the man born blind in John chapter 9. So the man is, has had his, his blindness taken away from him by Jesus, and the leaders call him before them because Jesus did this on the Sabbath. They're a little peeved about it, and they say, listen, give glory to God who healed you, or how did he heal you? Tell us that he is a sinner. We know that he is a sinner. The blind, formerly, blind man answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, though, is that I was blind, and now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Which this beautifully naive, formerly blind man thinks that they are asking because they want to go out and replicate that miracle. So they want to know, what is the procedure to do? And so he says to them, Oh, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered. By the way, you notice that Nicodemus quite clearly says that he saw the signs, and therefore he knows where he comes from. And listen to how the blind man answers. Staying before the rulers of the Jews, he says this, well, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone has opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So the, the other Pharisees don't get it. This particular Pharisee does. He says, I see the signs, and we know that you must come from God because you can't do the kind of signs that you're doing unless you are from God. The difference between the man whose eyes are blinded and then opened and Nicodemus is that Jesus says that Nicodemus is still blind. Jesus looks at him and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember last week in verses 23 through 25, the last bit of the chapter, the second chapter of John, people believed in his name but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. This is the example, then, of somebody who believes in Jesus' name, but Jesus refuses to entrust himself to. He tells Nicodemus that although you think that you're very close, although you think that you're right on the verge of seeing the kingdom of God, of knowing the kingdom of God, although you think you've seen something, you have seen nothing. You don't understand what it is that you're looking at because you have not been born again. You must be born again. And this is one of those beautiful double-meaning words. The word again can mean either again for a second time or it can mean above. You have to be born from above. Clearly, Jesus means it in both senses as we go through the rest of the verses here. So he's saying that you need to have something miraculous happen to you. John could have picked a number of people 
He could have picked a vast array of people because there were many people who believed in his name, but he picked this man. And it's important why he picked this man because again, what he is doing is picking out the best example he can of someone who should be close. And Jesus saying, no, there's nothing that you can do. You must be born again in order to even see the kingdom of God. And what's more, John doesn't just have him coming and have Jesus say, you must be born again to see it. But he says, you came at night. As we talked about, night is an incredibly important theme in the book of John. It not only speaks of his immoral ineptitude, but it also speaks of his complete and total unknowledgeable stance before God. He doesn't even know what it is he's seeing. He might have a good confession, but there's no good reason for it. Nicodemus, who is a teacher of God's word, who is a ruler of the Jews, who is upright in morality and knowledgeable in the ways of God, was not good enough for God's kingdom. If he needed to be born again, friend, I ask you, what right do you think you have to say that you can get in on how you are? Don't you need more than just a small fix, a broken fuse to be replaced, some knowledge given to you by experts? You need the very work of God in your life because Nicodemus is not needing simply to turn over a new leaf. He's not needing to try a little bit harder. He's not needing just a little bit of a repair. He's not needing to have simply a better example. He's not needing a new way of viewing the world. He's not needing some sort of technology to overcome his limitations. He's not needing to try just a wee bit harder. He needs a whole new start. You, in your sin, are totally and thoroughly broken. But there is good news. That is, that God's spirit makes you born again. Nicodemus answers him by saying this, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Because of his answer, many people think that Nicodemus is, to phrase it a little harshly, an idiot. Okay, because they say, like, this is the dumbest response that you could possibly have given. Why would Nicodemus answer this way? Commentators talk like this. So this is one commentator who I think is probably in line with a lot of people's thinking when they read John 3. He says this, Nicodemus missed Jesus' reference to birth from above, interpreting what he said in a purely temporal fashion a second time. He thought Jesus meant that people would have to undergo a second physical birth in order to see the kingdom. Emphatically, he did not. Nicodemus was not a fool, he was not silly, and he wasn't stupid. As a matter of fact, his answer is right in line with what he should have answered. I think that he becomes, by answering this way, probably the best rhetorical partner that Jesus has in all of the Gospels, as a matter of fact. He's probably the wisest of all of them. He understands that Jesus is prone to hyperbole. Have you listened to Jesus much? He talks like this. If your hand causes you to sin, you should... Wow, you guys do listen to Jesus. So you got to cut it off. And I notice that most of you have both of your hands and most of you would admit that you're sinners and ipso facto, you understand that Jesus talks in hyperbole quite a bit, right? And so one of the things that Nicodemus is doing is pointing out the hyperbole of Jesus and answering it with more hyperbole, saying, what am I supposed to do? Get back into the womb somehow so I can be born again? He's being facetious. He's clearly being quite sarcastic. But he is getting at something very important. Nicodemus is saying, okay, you're, you're telling me I need to be born again. The question that is at the forefront of Nicodemus' mind is, is, how am I supposed to do that? What is it that I'm supposed to do 
in order to gain new life? What is it that I'm supposed to do in order to be born again? This is, by the way, the question that Christianity and every other religion answers or has to answer. What am I supposed to do to be saved? What am I supposed to do to make things right? What am I supposed to do to get out of the, the issues that surround me, whether they're economic, whether they're physical, whether they're spiritual? It doesn't matter what they are. What do I need to do to achieve salvation? Now, Christianity typically, by the way, responds to that with repent and believe. That what you need to do in order to make yourself right with God, to achieve salvation, is repent and believe. As a matter of fact, that is ripe throughout the Gospels, and it is a good and right and holy, true answer. We need to believe that. So even in the book of John, that is an answer, and it is a good and right answer. In the book of John, chapter 6, verses 27 through 29, after Jesus has given them food, miraculously, they find him later, and he says this, Do not work for food that perishes, the bread that he gave them, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has set. Sent, that is. That's what he says. What are we supposed to do? We need to do something. What is it that we need to do? And he says, well, you need to believe in the one that God has sent into the world. But you'll notice the way that John puts that. That is not not work. That is most definitely work. What are the works we need to do? The work you need to do is believe. That is not John's answer here. And as a matter of fact, the fact that Jesus doesn't answer with believe or repent or something of that nature screams. So my, my daughter is going through a logic class and she's got all these logical fallacies and it's, it's a lot of fun. She reads like little statements in the book and she has to determine what the logical fallacies are, if it's ad hominem or a red herring or special pleading or whatever. There is a problem with arguments from silence. We can't argue from what people don't say, but sometimes what people don't say is loud, right? When you catch a child walking away from an open candy bag and you say, hey, hey, did you eat some candy? And they say, mm, mm, right? Like, yeah, that's pretty loud, right? Like, you understand that what they're actually saying is, yes, I did, but I'm not going to show you, right? So the silence is sometimes very loud, and the fact that Jesus doesn't answer that here is incredibly important. Jesus, instead of explaining away the hyperbole, instead of saying, okay, Nicodemus, you got me, what I really want to do is press home the point that you've got to really work at changing yourself, Because he could have easily done that. He could have said, okay, well, the metaphor is really an extreme metaphor. But what we want to get is we want to get that that you really need to work hard at changing yourself. It's almost like you're working hard at being born again. But Jesus doesn't do that. Although Nicodemus knows that what Jesus has said is outrageous and outlandish, Jesus turns around and doubles down on the insanity. And he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He says, I'm not going to relax it. Let me reinforce it. You can't enter. Not only can you not even see it, but you certainly cannot get into it unless you were born of water and spirit. Oh, we have had a baptism this morning. And so when people read this water and spirit thing, they almost always think of baptism. And for good reason. 
John baptizes with water. Jesus will later baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We baptize with water. We expect that the Holy Spirit is involved in a baptism like that. And so there is water and there is spirit in terms of baptism, but it is unlikely that that's what Jesus is thinking of here. What is more likely is that Jesus is thinking of the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel is an incredibly interesting book. It is probably the most colorful book in all of the Bible. You should read it from cover to cover. It is brilliant and it is interesting. These people are going to go out into exile. Part of Ezekiel, they're already in exile. Part of it, he is warning them about exile. But as they're going out into exile, they realize something. God has come to them and said, listen, you have all been sinful, 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 sinful for so many years, and I'm fed up with it, and so you are now going to get kicked out of the land. But the people who are there have realized something. They have realized that our ancestors did exactly what we're doing, and you never gave them the boot, right? Why are we being punished for their sins? Why did you take all that time of getting angry just to relinquish it on us? Why didn't you kick them out of the land earlier? Why are we paying for our father's sins? So there's a proverb. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Ezekiel answers that. This is from Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 20 through 23. God replies through Ezekiel to that proverb. The sin who sins, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Verses 30 through 32 of that same chapter, therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. Notice what he's saying. He's about to kick them out of the promised land, and he says, so you have a problem with me bringing judgment upon you because of all the patience that I've had on your fathers. He says, that's fine. You be angry about it, and I'm telling you, you can avoid all of it. You can avoid the judgment. You can avoid all of the wrath. Just turn and come back to me. That's all you need to do. Turn and come back to me. As a matter of fact, he says this, cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. That's an easy enough task. That's what it means to turn back to me. All you need to do, Israel, is repent and come back. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. He is, this is, by the way, Nicodemus's answer, isn't it? What do I have to do? How am I going to make myself live again? That is exactly the charge that God gives to Israel in the book of Ezekiel. Turn and live. Make yourself a new heart. Make yourself a new soul. Make yourself a new person and come back to me and you can live. As a matter of fact, that almost exam, same exact sentiment is explained again in Ezekiel 33, word for word. In that 33rd chapter in verse 19, God again talks about, after already saying, why will you die, O house of Israel? He turns to them and says, when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. 
O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. He has called them back again. He has explained to them all over again. If you repent and come back to me, you will live. The very next verse, after he says, I will judge each of you according to his ways. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. Judgment is final and it is complete. There is no more Jerusalem. There is no more promised land. God has allowed for it all to be destroyed. The people did not repent. The people did not return. They were not able to make themselves new hearts and new spirits. But God's problem with his people has only begun because as he scatters them out, three chapters later, we find that there's a new problem. In chapter 36, verses 19 through 20, I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. They deserved to be kicked out of the land, so I kicked them out of the land. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, and that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. He said, simply by the fact that I had to kick you out is a profaning of my name because sending of you out into the nations made the nations ask, why didn't God, why wasn't he able to keep them in the land? How, how inept is this God that he couldn't overwhelm the Babylonians? He can't keep them in the land because that is to overlook their sin. If he kicks them out, then what happens? He looks weak and inept. So at the end of chapter 36, God says, I have a solution for all of this. Beginning in verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations, and gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus says that is precisely what I'm calling you to. This is exactly what he means. You must be born of the water and the spirit. You must be born again. Israel cannot affect their own salvation they can't repent and return to the Lord without him first giving them something. This is what it means for God to be the first and the last in salvation. When we read something like Acts 11.18, when the gospel finally goes out to the Gentiles, listen to how the church reacts to that. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. He has gifted them repentance. Repentance is something that God hands out to you. It is not something that you drill up in yourself. It's not something that you pull up out of yourself. You can't make yourself a new heart. You can't make yourself be born again. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, something we already read in Sunday school this morning. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. What is the gift of God there? I, I submit to you, it cannot possibly be grace. Because Paul never talks about grace and then turns around and has to redefine it as though it's a gift of God. The gift of God there is faith. If you believe, it's because God has given you a new heart. It is the work of God within somebody that causes them to know, to see, and to understand the kingdom of God. This is incredible ramifications for how we live and who we are in our life. 
Friend, if you are a believer this morning, you ought to be extremely humbled. It is not because you have moral eyes that can see the compass of the world that you have come to know Jesus Christ. It is not because you understood better than your idiot neighbors what it was that Jesus Christ has done for you. It's not because you are better than all of your other unbelieving people that surround you at work. It isn't because of any goodness in you at all. It is because of the kindness and the grace and the gift of God. That is it. God didn't save you because you came to understand him. God didn't save him because you were closer to him. Nicodemus is no closer than the drug addict pimp out on the streets of Chicago. It is by God's grace that you are saved. If you are not a believer this morning, we would still look at you and tell you what you need to do is repent and believe. Now, now it's not that you can make God's spirit come upon you, but it's that by repenting and believing, we see the example of the spirit working in your life. Listen to how Jesus talks directly after this. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He says, the flesh gives birth to the flesh. So no matter what you do, no matter how hard you work, you are only going to give birth to that which is filled with sin and which is destined for mortality. But the Spirit can give you eyes for eternal life. He talks about the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now again, beautiful double meanings in all of that. Wind and Spirit, the exact same word in Greek. So he says, the wind blows where it wants to. If you walk outside this time of year, it's fantastic. I go outside at night because I've got to walk the dog. You look up and you can see the sun, or you can't see the sun, it's in the middle of the night. You can see the moon, which is like a sun, it's a mini sun. So you see the moon and you can hear the wind blowing through the trees and you can hear it rustling far off and then it comes closer and you prepare yourself for that cold blast and sometimes it hits you, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there's a wind that hits you, you have no idea where it comes from. And what Jesus is saying is you don't see the wind. You don't see it blowing through an open field unless it's blowing something up. You can only see the results of the wind. And so it is with the Spirit. If you are not a believer today, when you are called upon to repent and believe, what we want to see is the rustling of the leaves as the Spirit blows through you. That is what repentance and belief are. It's sure and everlasting signs that God has worked in you. Third, your sin makes you blind. God's spirit can work in you to bring you to new life, but without it you are blind and you don't understand things. Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? I don't understand. I mean, I get it, but I don't get it. I know exactly what you're calling for, but I, I don't understand. How am I, how am I supposed to achieve this? What am I supposed to do? And Jesus says to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Now again, if, if what Jesus had just been talking about was about baptism, it would be highly unlikely that he would expect Nicodemus to know and to understand what he had just said. But if it's woven through the fabric of Ezekiel, which is also, by the way, woven through the fabric of Deuteronomy, especially Deuteronomy chapter 30, which is perhaps where Ezekiel gets a lot of his notes from, and Jeremiah 31. If all of those passages put together, along with a good portion of Isaiah, if all of that inspires inspires the Old Testament and kind of is the push of the Old Testament towards new birth. Jesus has every right to look at this man and say, I don't get it. How can you call yourself a teacher in Israel and miss something this fundamental? Miss something as fundamental as the need for new hearts and new spirits before God. 
He goes on to say, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Now, there's a sense here in which he is mocking Nicodemus, who shows up by himself but seems to be speaking for a group beside him. We know that you are a teacher come from God. And Jesus says, oh, we speak what we know. What he's talking about there is, I think, the Trinity. Oftentimes, Jesus speaks in the first person, and oftentimes, or the first person plural, and oftentimes, in the book of John, that is for the Father and him. And I think that this is for the Father and him and the Spirit. And he's looking back at the Old Testament. He's saying, listen, we speak what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. He's like, we wrote it down for you, Nicodemus. It was there for you to read. I just read you a huge portion of it. It was there. You've studied it your whole life, and you don't get it. You don't get it. And you don't get it because you're blind, because your sin makes you blind. Listen, even understanding the words that are in the Bible, understanding what they mean. You wonder why there's, there's so many people out there who don't believe in the true gospel, but they pervert it, they twist it, they cheapen it, they make it, they make it anything but good news for people. Why is it that they can do that? Because they don't know the word of God. Because the Spirit of God is not in them, leading them to truth. Nicodemus is a teacher in Israel, and he does not understand the words that are written down for him. And again, what we are reminded of is that even understand the words that are in front of us, we need the Spirit of God to help us. We are wholly broken all the way through. And if God's Spirit is not helping us, then we cannot understand anything. And that's important because what we come to next is confusing. Jesus says, listen, if I told you earthly things and you couldn't believe that, then what would you do if I told you heavenly things? That is, these things are already written down for you. You can unroll the scroll of Isaiah and it's there, or excuse me, Ezekiel, and it's there for you. Now, what if I was to tell you the hidden things of heaven? How are you ever going to believe that? If you don't believe what's been written down, very easy and acceptable things, how are you to understand the greater things of heaven? So your sin has made you blind, but the Spirit can make you believe. God's Spirit can make you believe. The last two verses here talk about Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness. This comes from Numbers 21. From Mount Hor, they sent out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people came impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Note, note, by the way, that is what my kids say all the time. I don't have any food, and I don't like the food that you've given to me. Right? Well, then you have food. Be quiet. Zip it. Eat your food. It's a worthless complaint. There's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. I don't do this to my children. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Good. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. That is utterly strange. It's really strange. God heals his people miraculously the vast majority of the time. He just takes away. He could have just sent the snakes away. But he didn't send the snakes away. Right? The snakes are there. And they're still nibbling on people. 
The, the answer then is to look at the snake on a pole and live, which is all kinds of weird. Even for Moses, that's all kinds of weird. What's even more weird is Jesus says, this is like what I'm going to do. How is that anything like what Jesus is going to do? But again, you have to understand something. Sight in the Gospel of John and sight as far as Jesus is concerned here is not, is not just visual sight. It is understanding the metaphor. It is understanding what Scripture is saying. It is a deeper understanding of the things of God. It is seeing it by means of understanding it and knowing it. What Jesus is saying is, as you look, notice what is replaced in the statement that Jesus makes about himself. It's not sight. It's not sight. It's not, I will be lifted up like the serpent in the desert so that anyone who sees me can have eternal life. But what do they do? They believe in him. They believe in him. So the seeing of the serpent is like the believing of Jesus on the cross. But what's more, the seeing of the serpent was seeing their judgment. It was their grumbling and complaining that led the snakes to them. They are seeing their own judgment portrayed. They are looking at the thing that is judging them. So it is with Jesus on the cross. We are seeing the one who judges us. In Acts 17.31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When you see Jesus on the cross, you are seeing the judge of all the earth who has been rightfully appointed the grand judge of the world because God has raised him from the dead. In Revelation 19, 11 through 16, John records this vision of a man sitting on a white horse and coming and judging the nations in wrath and in anger. That is no less than Jesus Christ. The seeing of the serpent was not just seeing the one who is their judge, but seeing their judgment. It is the judgment that has been brought upon them with the snakes biting them. They are looking at a snake Here again, with Jesus on the cross, we see our judgment carried out. That is our judgment sitting up there on the cross. That is what we deserve on the cross. The seeing of the serpent also showed the problem in the first place. For the Israelites, it was snakes that bit and killed them. For us, it is no less than our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God of God. Just as Moses was lifted up so the people could see their judgment, so the people could see their judge, so the people could see their sin, so God lifts up Jesus so that we can see the very same. But we can be healed just like them when we look at the cross and we see it for what it is. We see it as the path for us to be forgiven for our sins. We see it as one who has died for our sins and been raised for our justification. We see ourselves as worthy of judgment, so much worthy of judgment, that in order to escape that judgment, God must send his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God's spirit, God's spirit is the only one that can make you truly see what's happening on the cross. And by truly seeing, you can believe. Now, we, in our culture, often have a saying that seeing is believing. We want proof. We're very scientific, right? We're like pseudo-scientific. We want proof for everything. We want proof. There's no proof for you. Actually, the Bible holds out something completely different. There is no amount of seeing that you can ever do that will make you believe. 
There is no amount of seeing miracles. There's no amount of seeing a resurrection. There's no amount of seeing Jesus that will ever make you believe in who you are. Rather, it reverses that totally. It says, believing is seeing. It is believing that allows you to see the truth of what God has done. It is believing that allows you to see the truth of what Christ has given over for you. It is believing that allows you to know that your sins are taken away. Not to see them taken away, but believing they are taken away. They are taken away. Friends, let us continually pray then for those whom we know are lost, who don't know the Lord. Listen, one of the things that this does for us is it makes it very, very clear that there is no one who is so lost that God cannot save them. Absolutely no one. Do not give up praying for those people. Pray for them because it is only the work of God that can lead them there in the first place. And secondly, don't stop praying for people who seem like they're really close. Because people who are really close have an infinite gap to get through. They're infinitely close like Nicodemus is infinitely close. And Nicodemus needed to be born again. Pray for those people. Pray for them. Ask for God, just as Pastor Richard did even this morning, that their names might too be written in the book of life. For without God working in them, no amount of their confession will ever, ever make them new again. It is only by the work of God in their lives that they can come to know Jesus Christ. Secondly, let us make sure that we are thanking God for his mighty work in us. If there is anything that this passage ought to do, it is to remind ourselves how little we did to gain salvation. Salvation has been handed to you. Salvation has been given to you. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, it is only by his immeasurable grace that you know a lick of anything. It is only because he is kind and compassionate to the utmost that you know him. So be thankful because what he has done is amazing and it is amazing grace that has helped you and led you to this place. Trust in him and believe in him as he was lifted up. That is your salvation. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks this morning for the work that you have done through your spirit. Those whom you have saved rightly understand that we have nothing to offer you. We did nothing to earn our salvation. By your grace, you have made us alive again, given us new hearts and minds that we might praise you. We pray that your name is magnified among the nations as your work is completed here on earth. And let it be magnified here in this place, for your salvation has come even to these people, even to us. We pray that your spirit might be poured out and people may be saved by Christ. People may be saved in Christ's exalting work. That your name may be praised forever. Amen.